1: Father, thank you for the beauty of this day. It really has been spectacularly uh, beautiful. It's beautiful to see, to see the sunlight come through the, through the clouds and, and just to glow on the flowering trees and to see the, the breeze, the effects of the breeze and, and just uh, to know, oh Lord, that this world uh, has been created to display your, your beauty and your glory. And, Lord, I pray that we would, as we look on it, set our hearts on things above, not on earthly things, that we would actually use it as a springboard to heavenly meditation. And, Father, as we study the attributes tonight that are in front of us, and I don't know how far we're going to get, but perhaps even the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, I ask that you would just send forth now your Holy Spirit. We believe it's the Spirit's specific ministry to teach us of Christ and of yourself that we might know who you are. And so, Lord, I thank you that you have uh, decreed that there will be um, pastors and, and teachers that uh, just help us to understand the word and I thank you that I've benefited from so many uh, that have taught me and Lord I pray that you would please be with me now as I teach tonight Father I pray that our hearts would be lifted up there may be various um, uh, struggles that people are going through various trials uh, some forms of suffering Lord I don't know what they are I do want, I do want to alleviate them though Lord and I, I want to bring encouragement and I, I think that certainly heart-to-heart ministry of those specific details and intercessory prayer can be a great encouragement, but so also can be a general teaching of the nature of God from the Scripture and who He always is and how He always is and how He has always been for all of His people in every generation, in every circumstance, in every setting. Lord, You never change. And for us to meditate on that actually can be sometimes an even more effective encouragement than specific point-by-point discussion of the sufferings we're going through. So I pray that you would lift our hearts now and help us to think of who you are. Be with me now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So um, we have three more attributes to study. And as I look at the cluster of the three attributes that are in front of us, uh, I'm, I'm, st- I'm struck with the fact that they, they really are heavenly attributes to some degree. Attributes that I think we will really fully experience and immerse ourselves in when at last we see the Lord face to face in the new heaven and the new earth. Um, they are... Um, blessedness and um, beauty and glory. So when you think of those words, I mean, your mind must immediately go to think about heaven. Can't you think of it? I mean, the blessedness of God is God's happiness. Uh, God is a happy being. And we are going to just be swimming in a sea of happiness when we go to go to heaven. When we're up there, we're going to be just happy. And so we're going to meditate today on God's blessedness because, friends, that's where we're heading. We're heading toward happiness. You may not be feeling happy today. But you ought to be, actually. You remember what the Scripture says. The Apostle Paul says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so we should always be rejoicing. Uh, and so the blessedness of God. And we're going to study the beauty of God. And this is something that, you know, again, hard for us to understand. But I think the eye was made to to appreciate beauty. And so sometimes you don't even know what it is. It's very hard to define. Philosophers have tried to define it. Um, but I, I just think it's it's part of the, that God made us as receptors for beauty and that he's beautiful and so that we can therefore receive the beauty of God to which the creation is just a dim reflection. It's just a just a dim testimony. Let's put it that way of the beauty of God, whatever beauty you see on this, uh, these fine spring days. And, and there's a lot of beauty. Whatever beauty you may see there is is coming from God. He is the He is the source of the spring. That's just water down downstream that we're drinking. He you trace it back, it's going to God, who knows beauty, and more than just knows beauty, He is beauty. He is beautiful, and so therefore I you know I said in a recent sermon, the most beautiful thing you will ever see is Jesus Christ glorified. When you see Him with your own eyes, that 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 view will be so transforming that you will immediately as a believer in christ you'll be immediately transformed you'll be made like him just because you've seen him in his glory it's called the beatific vision the blessed the vision of blessedness and you'll see it beauty and then there's glory and again very closely related uh to uh beauty they're very closely related and sometimes these attributes are really hard to you know to to differentiate like between grace and mercy very very hard to be very strict on any differences between the two And so also the differences between, uh, you know, God's uh, uh, beauty and his glory. But we'll we'll try. And uh, if they end up being kind of the same thing, that's fine with me, okay? Uh, Just really, really good things being in the presence of God. Let's put it that way, all right? But let's start with blessedness. Um, The blessedness of God, Wayne Grudem defines as uh, to be blessed means to be happy in a very full and rich sense. God's blessedness means that God delights fully in himself. I'm on page 8. We did all the other stuff that precedes that. Wouldn't mind doing it again, but I'm not gonna, not tonight anyway. So we're up on page 8. Sorry about that, friends. Page 8, blessedness, attribute 18. Okay, I'll, I'll read it again. To be blessed means to be happy in a very full and rich sense. God's blessedness uh, means that God delights fully in himself and in all that reflects his character. So you just look at those words God is a blessed being, He's blessed in and of Himself, and that means He's happy. He delights in Himself, He really does. He's happy to be God and he's happy to do the things that he does. He doesn't do things reluctantly or out of compulsion. Again, this connects to God's freedom because God never does anything out of compulsion. Nobody can make him do anything. So therefore, the only reason for anything he ever does is that he's happy to do it. It It brings him happiness to do that. It brings him glory. And there is no better meditation on this theme than The Pleasures of God by John Piper. It's about a 300 plus page meditation on the happiness of God. Uh, He said it really is a a prequel to Desiring God that he wrote later, after Desiring God. But basically, it all starts with God, and that is uh, that God is a happy being. So we're going to meditate on that. Uh, But just a a marvelous thing. God is just a delighted being. And you know, in in, in one sense, if you're not, that's really just your problem. (laughs) Because God is happy and always has been and always will be. He cannot be moved from that. That's just who he is. Now, he wants you to be happy too, and that's why he sent his son. He wants you to be eternally joyful and happy in His presence uh, and, and to be in Him so that you can be happy as He is. Uh, and we'll get to that. But but the bottom line is He is happy, even despite all of this misery going on. He is a happy being. Herman Boving put it this way, God's blessedness comprises three elements. One, that God is absolute perfection, absolute life. Secondly, that this perfection is the object of God's knowledge and love. And uh, thirdly, that God delights in himself in absolute sense, that he rests in himself, that he's perfectly self-sufficient. So first, God's, uh, God is absolute perfection. Blessedness relates to the measure of perfection uh, that pertains to a being. God is perfect in every way. Therefore, God is at the highest level of blessedness. Also, scripture closely relates life with blessedness. Life without blessing could hardly be called life at all. Uh, God is constantly living a life that perfect, perfectly free from disturbance, whether inwardly or outwardly. So he's, you know, linking it to the doc, the attribute of perfection that we discussed earlier, but basically you could say that blessedness is the highest state of being. And so God is that. And so you can't get any better as a state of being than God is. So therefore he's a perfectly blessed being. That's what Herman Bavinck is doing with this. Also, secondly. I'm sorry. God knows Himself with a knowledge that's absolute, and loves Himself with a love that's absolute. This complete contentedness in Himself is the source of His blessedness. So God has searched Himself, and He knows Himself. There is a Bible verse that teaches this: that the Spirit searches the deep things of God. The Spirit knows God and searches God out. And and so while we cannot completely know God, that's not true of God. God does, in fact, completely know Himself. He has studied Himself. And uh, as he studies himself, um, he is absolutely in love with himself and contented with himself. He, he doesn't think he can be any better. Now, you may, it's like the longer we go, this is like getting weird, you know, but it must be so. Don't you see? I mean, could it be that God could truly be God and not really know himself or God could only know part of himself or doesn't really know all of it? I mean, all of these things are just true statements. You just are not used to thinking this way. And you ought not to think this way about yourself. We'll get to that in a minute. But but just because you ought not to think about yourself this way doesn't mean God ought not to think. I mean, that's really arrogant for us to think God ought to be just like me now. He ought to be thinking just like I do. Now, I need to be humble about myself. God ought to be humble about himself. Look, God is God, and he is not going to be humble about himself. He is basically asserting that he cannot be any better than he is, and that includes happiness. So he's completely happy with who he is completely contentedness. And by the way, that is the heaven we're going to. Don't you see that's where we're heading? We're heading to a being who's got it all figured out, who knows himself and knows that he's perfect and is completely content with that and will never change. That's where we're heading. That's a good place to be, isn't it? A place of perfect blessedness and happiness. And I say away with any visions of heaven that don't have God at the center, right? I mean that's not heaven. I want to go where God is. That's and all the other things are just manifestations. We'll get to that, but anyway, thirdly, uh, God delights in Himself in an absolute sense, perfectly self-sufficient. God is His own blessedness. God also delights in His creation as a reflection of His own nature, and for no other reason. He delights in what He sees of Himself and what He's made. So this is Herman Bavinck, who predates John Piper by a long while, and so we shouldn't imagine it's Piper that came up with these thoughts. You know, it, they're coming really right from Scripture, and these are just theologians that have come along later to help us think these new thoughts. All right, what biblical support? Well, the Greek word makarios. Translated, blessed or happy. Uh, two verses use these adjectives to, to describe God. God is a blessed being. Okay, First Timothy six fifteen and 16, which God this is the middle of a thought here, but it says which God will bring about in his own time. God, the one we're talking about here, God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. So that's just a great doxology there. But it begins with the statement about God. The first thing it says about God is that he is blessed. He's a blessed being. And that means he's happy or filled with pleasure in himself. All right. This next one is really powerful, and Piper himself meditates on it very uh, fruitfully, I think, in First uh, Timothy 1.11. Again, in the middle of the thought, but we'll just pick right up there. It, it, it's, it's talking about things that conform to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. And what Piper does, is he just really just works on, on the idea of the gospel of the, of the blessed God. The word gospel means good news. And so the glorious good news, and, and here's that slippery word of, it's very important that we understand these words of. Is, it, is this the gospel that comes from God here? yes. But it could be that this also is the gospel about God, that the good news actually is God, that God is the good news, that God is the gospel. The good news is God and, and that all of this, this message is, is designed to bring us to God, to bring us back to him. And so the good news is that God is happy and, and that when you get God, you'll be happy, too. And you'll be delighted and joyful. And all the misery that sin has brought into this world will be finished. And we will be in the blessed state that we yearn for. And and we do. Uh, we can't deny it. I want to be happy. I want, I want to be blessed. And you can't be human and not want that. I mean, we, we want that. We yearn for that. It can be proven from Scripture and from other things as well. That's the yearning in our hearts. We want to be happy too. And God isn't in any way squelching that. Not at all. He's just saying, here's where you'll find it. Me. You find it in me. So come to me. This is the glorious gospel of the happy God. The good news about the happy God. And about a God who can make you happy too. That's really what it is. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation for us who believe too. We told that in Romans 16. So that's a powerful verse, isn't it? The good news that God is, is happy and content in everything he does. Okay, well, Christ also ascribes happiness to the master of the servants in a stewardship parable. Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one. his master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Uh, another translation would say, enter into the joy of your master. Or come and share your master's happiness. Or let me show you what happiness really is. <laughs> enter in now. And, and I will give you eternal happiness lessons. Okay, you'll be happy, perfectly happy. So enter into that. I'll say more about that later in this section, but God really just wants us to enter into his happiness. I think it's also specific specific to the rewards. I really believe that. The five talents and the two talent and all that, that basically God wants to reward them and he rewards them by a shared experience of his happiness in the thing. I I really think that's what the reward is. You did this thing. You gave this money. You prayed this prayer uh, for somebody interceded. You did this good work. I was happy with that. I was delighted with that. I was delighted with your spirit, the spirit of faith, the, the, the action itself. Once it needed, a little, it needed a little cleaning up. But I cleaned it up, <laughs> purified it. And by the way, if you don't think any of your good works need cleaning up, think again, okay? <laughs> all of them need cleaning up. But once it's been purified from whatever vestiges of selfishness and pride and all that, once it's been, been cleaned up, you know, and through the blood of Christ it's clean, I'm pleased with it. I, I delight in it. And now enter into my delight. I want to share with you forever how happy I was in that good work. So I think, wow, let's have lots of those. You know, that's the motive for doing lots of good works, right? I'd like as many of those shared moments as possible. I want to live a life rich in good works. Uh, There's a Bible verse that speaks about that, that we would live a life rich in good works. So the idea is to store up as much treasure as possible in heaven, that we would be rich in good works. And then God will share his happiness with us forever. And not just with us, but with a multitude greater than anyone can count. God's got lots of happiness to go around. Okay. And he'll share that with us. So we should be ambitious now for that kind of happiness then. That's what store up treasure in heaven means. Store up happiness, shared happiness with God. And there's no way you can twist that. I don't Well, Perhaps you could. But I think it's hard to twist that and make it idolatrous. It's, 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 it really can't be idolatrous. It's so God-centered and God-focused and all that that there's no way it could be idolatrous. It's a shared experience of happiness over some good work you did. So store up lots of them, that's all. So that's, a ha- that's all about happiness. I was happy with that. Well done. Good job. I'm happy with you, etc. All right, moving on. The Bible often depicts God as rejoicing. Uh, we've seen this verse before, but it's a great one. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Or again, we can meditate on this and say, whatever God does pleases him. Would you, would you say that? Yes. That whatever God does pleases him. You know, and, and that would not be true of us. <laughs> Romans 7 covers that. It is not true that whatever I do pleases me. There's some things I do that very much don't please me. And I wish I would never do them again. But it's not true of God. He never, he never is displeased in what he does, despite any verses that seem to say that God repents of what he does. It's the, the, the depths of these teachings are far greater than we can, we can deal with here. But I'm just saying that this is, this is the Bible's teaching. All right? You know, and, and, and again, there are verses that deal with that. Just as it pleased the Lord to do such and such to bless you, so it will please him to wipe you out. I mean, there are verses like that. that he said. And, and, and you're like, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, that's fine, but it doesn't mean it's not true. That God was pleased to plant you, Israel, and he'll be pleased to uproot you if you don't obey him. And so that everything God does pleases him. It was ple- it was pleasing to God to create the world, and it was pleasing to God to wipe the world out by the flood. That's just what we're that's what these verses imply here. Again, Psalm one thirty five and verse six the Lord does whatever pleases him. In the heavens and on the earth and the seas and all their depths. Again, this implies if there were something God wanted, well he could go get it, right? he's not restrained in this regard i want something but i just can't i can't seem to get it isn't that you know isn't that the human experience there's some something that would please me but i just can't seem to attain to it that's just not true of god whatever would please him he goes and does it why because he's king he's god he can do anything he can, any anything he can do whatever his good will is and so he goes there and gets it and so you see then why some people that really believe in the sovereignty of god say that this world that we're living in now is the best possible world there can be for god's purposes This is the best world there can be to achieve his ends. And though you don't really see that or understand it, again, it must be so. Because if there could be a better world, God would make it so. And he is going to make it so. It's called the new heaven, the new earth. He's getting there. Just be patient. He knows what he's doing. And he's going to get there. All right. But in the meanwhile, we have to be content and not murmur under what God's doing here. And we need to trust him. And I think meditating on this would enable us to be happier in our trials than we are. For us to say, you know, this, re- this really couldn't be a better situation for us. This is the best thing for us right now. And again, I'm not, I'm not excusing sin. We know that sin's never the best thing. But I'm just talking about, about in providence, the doctrine of providence, we are h- gladly submitting to what God is doing and saying, God knows what he's doing and I trust him. And these are the people, the people that accept this doctrine, whatever, they are the happiest and most stable people you ever meet because they are just so happily content. That's the secret, I think. It is the secret of being content in any and every situation. It's just believing that God's in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. So meditate on this for a while. We're just doing meditation. That's what we're, that's what we're doing you know, together. I've already mentioned Piper's book. You should read it. It'll, it'll jar you, if, you haven't, if you're not used to drinking this kind of, of living water. It'll jar you, but in, in a very good way, a good, healthy way. All right, so we see God's pleasure in creation. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Uh, Psalm 104, verse 31, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. By the way, the the phraseology shouldn't trouble you. Um, It's similar to us blessing the Lord, right? And we're told, there are examples of us blessing the already blessed one. We already said he's blessed. What does he need more blessing for? But I think what it is is that our hearts are delighting in God's blessings and we want God to be rejoicing in his works so it's basically us getting what the program is all that is may the Lord be glad in his works well he is glad in his works we already saw that in another verse but what we're saying is I want him to be glad in his works and uh, therefore I'm glad in his works too Also, on this theme of God's delight in creation, do you not sense some of that as he goes through a a litany of his works in front of Job? Have you considered the ostrich? What about the behemoth? Uh, What about this and that? Were you there when I made the stars? God's just saying, I really like this place. I mean, the craftsmanship here is excellent. I mean, have you noticed this or that? I mean, he's really just, it seems, boasting in what he made. And I think that's really kind of exciting, isn't it? You know? And Job's getting smaller and smaller in his own estimation, in a very healthy way, in a very good way, to just be healed of, of all that bitterness he was feeling and all of that bitterness. And what a beautiful place to be, to be still sitting there on an ash heap and to say, I, I, I repent. I just repent. I'm, a different, I'm in a different place now. Thank you, God. And you have nothing. You have nothing. It's all gone. Children's still dead, all your possessions gone. But there's must have been, I just believe, as he's repenting, a peace and a joy such as he had never experienced in all his life. And he'd say, you know, if I could if I could have all that back and not this, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't make that trade. Just to have God talk to me like this, and to be have this experience with God is it makes it all worthwhile. So for me that's a beautiful thing. But again, notice what God does there in Job. He just goes through and just is so pleased with his physical creation. He just loves the animals, you know, and he loves he loves the ocean and he loves all the stuff he's made. And we got that right from Genesis one. The Lord saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. You know, this kind of thing. That's really coming from God. Hey, isn't it good? Look at it. It's just beautiful. So I love that. And then uh, God's pleasure and his fame. First Samuel twelve twenty-two. for the sake of his own great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. So God is pleased to do all this stuff with Israel so that all the nations would know how great he is. It, it makes him happy to make his name great. It brings him delight to do new and interesting things in redemptive history. And do you notice that? It's just amazing the variety of God's acts throughout history. You know, he never does another Red Sea crossing. There's no need. The walls of Jericho, they just fall one time. I mean, there's no need to do any of that again. He keeps doing new things. And, and like he says in Revelation, behold, I'm doing something new. And, and God just loves to do new things. So how could heaven ever be boring? He's just immensely creative. But uh, God takes pleasure in His fame that we would all know um, the greatness of His name. And this one uh, somewhat difficult for us to accept. But again, God's pleasure in bruising His Son... A voice uh, from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What a vast, I would have to say, infinite understatement that is. Just you get the idea, but I'm very pleased with Jesus. (laughs) God the Father saying that about his own son. I'm very pleased with him. He brings me pleasure. And so again, this I think is of the essence of the happiness of God as the Trinity. God is pleased to exist in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though we don't understand it, there's a pleasure in that relationship they have with each other. The Father loves the Son. And the Son loves the Father. And and He teaches that in Matthew 11. There's just that incredible love relationship that they have. And so so the Father loves Him and then He kills Him, crushes Him. And, And Isaiah tells us that He was pleased to do it. You know, it's hard for us to understand. But we must understand it. We must meditate on it. You know, this is the Matthew 3 at the baptism and then again at the Mount of Transfiguration. He says twice in Matthew's Gospel, I'm pleased with him. I love my son. And it must be that way. We must understand the love of God at the cross. That we must see we cannot be loved any more than we were loved there. You may not be feeling loved right now as a Christian. You may not be feeling loved. You are loved. You can't be more loved than you were at the cross. That's the greatest gift you could ever get. That was the beloved Son that was poured out for you there. That's the whole weight of Romans 5.8 that we're studying in our men's Bible study. Some of the men are here, right here. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this while we're still sinners. Christ died for us. You'll never have a greater display of God's love for you than that. And so there it is. Everything else is less than that. It, It is every other gift. All of it is less. New Jerusalem is less than that, you know resurrection body, all of those things, all of the subsidiary things that come along with it is less than the gift of Jesus for you on the cross. That's that's the greatest. Because Romans 8 says, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us what? All things. So we could imply that the implication there is all other things, right? So you have two categories of gifts that there are. Two categories of gifts. There's God's son given for you, namely on the cross. And then there is all other things. And of the two, which is greater based on the logic of Romans eight, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. How will he not also along with him gracious? How would he not? You see what that means is everything else in the universe that you could all if you all put it together and put it in one big sack as a gift. It would be less than Jesus on the cross given for you. That's the point. So if you weren't feeling loved when you walked in the door, I hope you're feeling loved now. Because God doesn't have to give you that healing or that job or that possession or that possible spouse or, he, or that child. He doesn't have to give you those things to show his love. And, and really, if, if you think so, then put it this way. Lord, I know you gave me Jesus, but I'd really feel loved if you would do this. Can you really say that to him? I can't imagine saying that. I must have these blessings. No, you don't have to have them. If it's God's good pleasure, He'll give them to you. But you already have the greatest gift you could have. Jesus on the cross for you. It's been given. So powerful, powerful. And God was pleased to do it. Again, there was no compulsion on the cross. He wasn't forced to give His Son on the cross. What could we have done? Think of it this way. If He wasn't disposed to give His Son, could we have persuaded Him to do it? What what, what would you say? Well, God, would you mind sending Your Son and pouring out Your wrath on Him for me? No, I don't want to do that. I will not do that. Well, how about if I? Doesn't matter. Anything that goes after that, it's over. There's no way you could have persuaded him to do it. He was not under any compulsion. He did this freely. He wanted to do this. It was his good pleasure to do this. That's why he did it. If he hadn't been pleased to do it, he wouldn't have done it. And so I believe both Jesus and the Father display the same attitude toward the cross. And so you need, a, if you try to understand the Father's attitude, look at the Son because they have the same attitude. And Jesus looks at the cross who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and sat down at the right hand. So the cross itself, no, that's not it. It's what the cross achieves that brings God pleasure. And what does it achieve? Well, it achieves our salvation and that brings him pleasure. And he gets his son back with the glory he had with him before the world began but now with, in many ways, I would have to say more glory because he said, Father, glorify your son, right? So he has more glory now, more achievements by Jesus, more greatness, more of a display of his son. It's all better. It's a, it's a pleasure thing. So that's why he did it. He did it. He gets us and he gets Jesus with more glory. That's awesome. I think it's a good deal, don't you? <laughs> I mean, I think it was well done. And so he was pleased to do it, though the thing itself didn't bring him any pleasure. So keep that in mind. But it's what it achieved. I think it's the same thing with the condemnation of the wicked. I don't think the thing itself brings him any pleasure. He doesn't take any pleasure in the demise of the wicked. That's not it. But he certainly takes pleasure in cleaning up his universe. Doesn't he? Doesn't he take pleasure in weeding out of his kingdom everything he didn't plant? All those weeds gone. All the wickedness. Everything that causes sin and all those who do evil weeded out of the kingdom gone. Does that bring him pleasure? Oh, yes. A clean universe free from all of that wickedness. Yes, that brings him pleasure. Not the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. That's not it. But it's the cleaning up of the universe and the display of His justice and all that. That's what brings Him pleasure. Okay? All right, moving on. God's pleasure in our salvation. In the same way, Luke 15.10, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, it doesn't tell us who's doing the rejoicing in this verse. It just says that the angels get to watch the rejoicing. See that? Maybe it's another angel. I'm not thinking so, though. Because if you look in in Luke 15, in every case, there are three stories told about something lost, right? And then there's a search that goes on and the thing is found. So it's a lost sheep, it's a lost coin, it's a lost son, right? And in every case, the one who was yearning for the thing back is the one who leads the celebration, right? Right? Come and celebrate with me, right, says the father. My son was lost and now he's found, that kind of thing. The woman calls all of the neighbors together because she found her lost coin. And, and, the, and the shepherd calls everyone together and they celebrate. So who was it that was seeking and saving us Well, Jesus, yes, and the Father, both of them are the seekers. Both of them are the the, uh, saviors. And so the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. They are the ones celebrating in the presence of the angels. And the angels, I'm sure, pitch in too, don't you think? Don't you think they're joining in the celebration and celebrating? But as as a reflex, not leading out, but seeing God celebrating, they're celebrating too. So God's a happy God. He enjoys saving people. He enjoys saving people more than you enjoy being there when someone gets saved. And you do enjoy that, don't you? When somebody comes to faith in Christ, maybe you haven't had that privilege, but maybe you have. To be there when someone actually trusts the Savior, you know, and ask Jesus to come into their heart. And by the way, I love what Michael Card said about this recently. Somebody asked, you know, did you ask Jesus into your heart? He said, actually, it was more like Jesus asked me into his heart. <laughs> I love that. That's why I love Michael Card. He's such a thinker. But anyway, yes, he asked me and that's that really does jibe with Matthew 7 where he says I never knew you away from me. I didn't I never knew you. It's all about me and who I know and who I invite into my heart. And so that's I just love Michael Card. That was that was a good statement. That's a keeper. All right? So, you know, so God has pleasure or this one, Luke twelve thirty two. I love this verse. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He just enjoys giving you the kingdom. It brings him joy to give you the kingdom. And, and again, in Isaiah 62, 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, what a, what a great, what a great verse. You know, you think of all the great love stories you've ever read or seen depicted or whatever. There, that's nothing compared to this love story. Think of all that God had to do to get this bridegroom. It's been quite an effort. <laughs> you know, read about it in Ephesians 5. But all that Jesus had to do to get his, his bride ready for um, that, that uh, wedding. And so he is just going to be so delighted over us. Uh, God also has uh, pleasure. God uh, takes pleasure in doing good to all who hope in him. So he loves doing us good. In Jeremiah 32:41, it says, I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. If you think about that. That's speaking about the Jews and the restoration of the Jews to the promised land and all of that. It's just amazing when you think about that. God just really enjoys doing us good. So definitely he enjoys giving Christ. We've already covered that. But let's not minimize. I mean, Romans 8:32 does teach that God will graciously give us all things. So it's not like all things don't matter. He wants to give us lots of gifts, all kinds of good things. You know, a whole whole universe filled with, with gifts of his grace. And he just, hey, yeah, look at this. And here's another thing. And here's here's the here's the pearly gates and the streets of gold. And here's the river of life flowing clear as crystal down the center of this city. And you can drink from it any time. And here are the here's the tree of life, and you can eat from it any time. And and here's this new earth. And just go out and walk in those beautiful resurrection bodies I've given you. And just just the, you know sown in weakness, but raised in power. Well, you just go in power and go go enjoy the new earth. He's just going to give us lots of good gifts. And God enjoys that. I mean, he just enjoys giving us good things. I mean, I, I must tell you that I sometimes struggle with the wrong view of God, that he is in some way stingy or the other shoes about to drop. You know, God's been so good to me up to this point, but we know, you know, there's, there's going to come a reckoning on all these good blessings. He's gave. Well, to some degree, the Bible is saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. I've got so many good things more to give you. Most of the good things God has to give you, he still hasn't given you. They're just still in the future. So die happy. Seriously, die happy, die well, die thinking I'm about to get them. I'm about to get all those good things. Have a smile on your face. Talk to the nurses and doctors who don't know Jesus. Show them how to die. I mean, just be ready to die happy with a smile on your face and testifying to your faith. Die in hope, die well. That's all I'm saying. You know, because God has so many good things and He wants to give them to you. He's delighted to give them to you. By the way, I hope as you meditate on God, you want to be like this. We're supposed to be. We're created to be like God. So we're supposed to. We're supposed to de- delight in doing good to others too, aren't we? Aren't we supposed to just enjoy doing them good and be generous like He is? Just, this is what we're supposed to be like. It's a communicable attribute, it says at the bottom of the page. So go ahead and be happy. <laughs> be blessed. Um, anyway, God's pleasure in the prayers of the uh, upright. Sorry, one other, other verse, Psalm thirty-five twenty-seven. Great is the Lord who delights in the well-being of His servant. Just meditate on that. Isn't that great? God delights in your well-being. It makes Him happy that you'd be doing well. And and, and just in in every way. And and again, you're like, well, you know, isn't that heading us to the health and wealth gospel? You know, name it and claim it and all that sort of stuff. Look, God has just something so much better than their vision. Their vision is so earthly. Do you not see it? It's all about earthly health and earthly wealth. And my feeling is, you know, many of those people just are corrupt individuals who don't know anything about God and never give God any thanks. And they're really just in, in one passage, it says being fattened for the day of slaughter. And conversely, some of the people that God intends to most greatly honor are, are in some ways, very wretched here on earth, and they go about and you know, wandering about in deserts and holes and caves and, and 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 holes in the ground, and 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 they they're poorly dressed, and and it says, men of whom the world was not worthy. Read about them in Hebrews 11. They they lead very tough lives, but God's intending great, great blessing. So I I take this eschatologically. I'm not saying God doesn't intend to do you good here. He does. He does. But they're just foretastes. Just like Jesus' miracles are just foretastes, aren't they? I believe all of Jesus' healing miracles are foretastes of the resurrection. Talk about that. I mean, all of Jesus' miracles, don't they just kind of address one bodily function that's not working right? The resurrection hits them all. <laughs> you know, I mean, it gets them all. You get, you get the whole thing. Not just that you can see well. I mean, who knows? The man born blind still having trouble with the hearing. I don't have any idea. All I know is he could see now. But with the resurrection, you get it all. You get a perfect body. And so I believe all those miracles are just foretastes of the resurrection. The greatest miracles yet to come. Wow. I didn't know we were going to talk about all this stuff. This is awesome. Where are we going next? It's right here on the page. Well, you said all this stuff, but it's not here on the page. Where is it? But anyway, it's implied in these verses. All right, God's pleasure in the prayers of the upright. All right, the Lord, Proverbs 15, 8, the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases Him. God actually enjoys our prayers. How selfish is it then for us not to pray? God enjoys it when we get down, when we kneel and pray. And I must confess, I don't pray like I should, or as often or as long as I should. I don't. All my life I struggle with prayer and I I, I continue to learn to grow. But this verse would help me, wouldn't it? The Lord enjoys it when I pray. So I think it's it's very other-centered of us to meditate on this verse and say, Lord, I want to make you happy now. I want to kneel down. And you know what? I don't think it's just going to be Him happy for, for long. I think He's going to start ministering some of that happiness to you. <laughs> so you kneel in His presence and after a while you'll start to be happy too. <laughs> so, But just God delights in your prayers. He delights in them. Even if He says no. <laughs> Even if just because you don't know His plan and you ask for something that's not in His will, He's still delighted in your prayer. You know, he's still delighted in it. And God's pleasure in personal obedience and public justice. Uh, by the way, these categories are coming from Piper's book. Uh, if you, you know, I didn't come up with the categories. But uh, please get The Pleasure of God. It's just such a great book. Um, just mind, mind-bending and stretching. Very encouraging. But First uh, Samuel fifteen twenty two, It says, Did the Lord delight in burnt offerings as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than than the fat of rams. So I guess what I would say is just in light of our study here, to obey the word is better than sacrifice. What it it implies here is I have more pleasure in your obedience than in your animal sacrifice. It brings me more pleasure. So therefore, just take the comparative off and just say simply, God enjoys our obedience. It makes him happy. It brings him pleasure when we obey him. And I would have to say that that's proportional to us not getting it and still obeying. I think when you don't get it and you still obey, that brings God great glory and brings Him great pleasure, because He doesn't always tell us what's going on and what to do or why should we do this or that. And you know, but we obey anyway, even though we don't see it. Uh, it just brings Him glory. So it, God is just, just pleased with that. God also takes pleasure in judgment, and I and I quoted this, uh, Deuteronomy twenty-eight sixty-three. It shall come about as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you. So the Lord will di- delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. And I'll tell you, you read that and it's like, is that even in the Bible? Yes, it is. It's right there. It is. And And why does he tell them this ahead of time? So they won't disobey. So they won't disobey. And why does he tell us? Did God cause them to perish? Were they destroyed by the sword, famine and plague? Did that violate the principle that God only does what pleases him? No. No, it pleased him to do it. And so basically, in effect, he's saying, look, I'm going to be happy either way. But I would just urge you to be happy too because you're not going to enjoy my destroying of you. (laughs) And so I invite you to come over into my happiness. And the way you do that is to enter into a covenant with me. Now, we know it's not the covenant of of works of the, the law of Deuteronomy. That's not it. I think any, you know, the true believers all knew they were justified by faith apart from works. They knew it. Abraham knew it. David knew it. And so bottom line is that's it. But God is still going to be pleased. And so he takes delight in whatever he does. So in effect, it's a warning. Don't find your pleasure outside of me. Find it in me. That's what he's saying. And yet for all of that, okay, I don't want to be imbalanced, although I don't think there's anything wrong with just ending the Bible study now in one sense and saying all of that's true, but I still think we need to face some things. There are some things in this world that are said to displease God. Okay, Ezekiel 18.23, Do I take any pleasure from the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? All right. Or again, 1 Corinthians 10.5, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. So there's a clear statement of something God wasn't pleased with. He wasn't pleased with the Jews. And so he killed them. He, they didn't please him. All right. Or again, 2 Samuel 11:27. 27. After the time of mourning was over, David had her Bathsheba brought to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You now, what an incredible statement that is. You know, um, and we know just how deep deeply that God felt that. Um So there's a lot of things that displease the Lord in the same way that this verse testifies to. Um, So how do I put that together? I don't know. I'm not a super genius, uh, whatever. All I know is that God permits some things for a time that don't please Him, that He will most certainly clean up in the end so that everything pleases Him. And so in the end, everything will please Him. In, in, In the present time, He allows us to make really wretched choices and really bad decisions that displease Him. And so we ought to actually find out what pleases the Lord, it says in Ephesians, and and live a life of blessing in that regard. And what we do in our flesh is we keep trying things that God has said displease Him, and we find that they don't ultimately please us. That's part of God's grace to us to realize that they're not pleasing. And we are mindful of it and say, I want to get back to the blessed God. I want to get back close to Him. That's why we can't be given over to sin ever. Sin will not be our master. Sin's not going to rule us. Sin will not win. Amen. But we do venture out into it from time to time and we find again, yes, there's no pleasure out there. Let's go back to God. So God, for His own purposes, for a time being, for a time being, um, permits some things that displease Him. And let's let's give a, a plain example. Tomorrow I'm going to be uh, speaking at Patty Lewis's funeral and she was a believer, she loved the Lord. And uh, I'm going to be just meditating on John 11 uh, and I'm just going to be talking about the fact that Jesus... Uh, I'm actually not going to go into great detail because you don't have a lot of time at a funeral, but basically Jesus in John 11 is seething mad at, at death, I believe. He really would like to destroy it right there and then he'd like to kill it, but he just doesn't. He doesn't kill death right there. He doesn't throw death in the lake of fire like he does in Revelation 20. He doesn't do that. Why doesn't he do that? Why does he allow this thing that so clearly displeases him to continue for his own purposes? Because it would bring him glory to do so. And so he is, he is willing to put up with this thing that so greatly displeases him, which he actually brings about in every case. Let's not forget that. It's not like, oh, gee, someone died. Who was it? You know, no. God does it. God, when he takes away their breath, they perish. Read about it in Psalm 104. That's what happens. It's, it's not an accident, but still he hates death. There's no doubt about it. And yet he's allowing death to continue. And why? Because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us plainly that death is the final enemy and he will not get rid of it until the final trumpet. And so when the final trumpet comes, then he will be done with death and not until. So he actually puts up with something that displeases him greatly and that's death. So it's a mystery to me. I can't fully understand it, but it is so. And I think any other way of looking at the universe will lead you into great problems and great misery. Instead, set it up this way. God does what pleases him. Everything he does pleases him. He's sovereign over all things, permits things that displease him for a time for his own purposes to bring about greater pleasure and joy and happiness in the end. That's the best way I can make of it. Okay. How is blessedness, not perfection, but sorry, blessedness a communicable attribute? Well, have you ever been happy? <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever been happy in Christ? You know, there it's been communicated to you. You have received some of that blessedness. And God has been ministering blessedness to you through the deposit, the the Arabon, the down payment. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit ministers happiness to you in in God. And so that is a down payment. And so we are able to uh, share in that. We imitate God's blessedness when we find delight and happiness in all that is pleasing to God. Both those aspects of our own lives that are pleasing to God and the deeds of others. And we find our greatest blessedness, our greatest happiness, and delighting in the source of all good qualities, God himself. So basically then, one of the ways you can know you're really a Christian is is if you genuinely find that the things that God says in Scripture make him happy, they make you happy too. And I actually talked about that on Sunday in the, in the list from John Flavel. When you delight in the advance of the kingdom, whether you're involved directly or not, and that just makes you happy to hear that this tribe or that pe- person came to Christ or whatever, just makes you happy. That brings you joy, and you're going to get zero credit for it. But you can get all kinds of happiness from it if you'd like. You know, whatever happiness you want is there and available. But you'll get no credit at all, um, and that's a good thing, isn't it? I mean, to just celebrate and be happy about what God, what makes God happy. Yeah, I think it's in what is it in Micah six eight. He has shown you a oh man what is good and what the Lord desires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So what does it mean to love mercy? Does it mean to, that mercy would make you happy? I, I think this is part of what Jesus was criticizing with the scribes and Pharisees that were condemning. the you remember how his disciples were, were eating grain on the Sabbath? Remember? You know, that just shows you it wasn't lucrative to follow Jesus in those days. You know, it wasn't lucrative. They were acting like poor people. And so they were picking grain on the Sabbath and rubbing it in their hands and eating it, which the law permitted them to do. They weren't stealing, but the, what bothered the Pharisees is that they were harvesting on the Sabbath, you see. They were harvesting, and so they were coming after him. And so Jesus is, uh, well. And, and he says, You should have, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Learn that. Learn God, or, or let's put it in this language God delights in mercy. And it's mercy to me to give them some food. I, I, they're, they're miserable without it. And I'm, I'm alleviating their misery. It, it just makes me happy. It brings me delight to do this. Why aren't you happy? What's wrong with you? In effect, go and learn what this means. Said Jesus, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So go, go away with your animal sacrificial system, which I'm going to abolish anyway, very soon. Just take it away and learn this. I love mercy. You ought to love it too. And if you loved mercy, More, you'd be happier people, all right? But you're not. You're miserable people. The the Pharisees, the condemning ones. I love mercy. So we need to love it too. Any questions about blessedness? I just feel more blessed than I was half hour ago anyway. I just do. I think meditating on God makes me happy. Let's go on to the question of beauty. All right, beauty. Definition from Wayne Grudem. God's beauty is that attribute of God whereby he is the sum of all desirable qualities. Like I said, it's really going to be split in hairs to get between this and blessedness. So if this just kind of starts to become the same thing we just talked about, okay. But I do think when you think of beauty, don't you tend to think of the eye or the ear? You know, beautiful sight or that was beautiful music, that kind of thing. I think we tend to think of those things. And so I, I just think there's something, almost, almost have a hard time defining it. Maybe that's why philosophers spend so much time kind of working on beauty. What is it? But I think what it is, it's like a lock and a key. And, and, and God is the key and we're the lock, you know? And so God's being fits into these receptors that he's made. And we just say, wow, that's beautiful, beautiful. And God is the highest of that and the source of all that. I guess that's what it is. And so, you know, if you ever stood there and and watched the setting sun and, and, and you're just there and you're like, wow, what a, what a beautiful day it's been and what a beautiful place this is. And we have to go to work tomorrow. Oh. Have, to go to, have you ever had, had that kind of mixed experience? Like, boy, this is pretty, but you know, we're going to have to leave. Let's stay. Well, then we lose the job, and you know, we'll start anyway. Um, yeah, but there's another thought I've had, and that's that my five senses aren't enough. I want to kind of go out in it. I want to kind of swim in it. And so I have a sense of it, but it's not quite enough. And I think that's going to be removed in heaven. I think we're just going to have a sense of the greatness of God and the beauty of God in ways we can't even describe. And the beauty is going to flood into us. And it's going to hit all of these receptors that God will, will make in our being, our resurrection being. And we will just be so happy with everything that God's done. And you will be happy with the honors given to other Christians. You will not be jealous at all. And you'll be happy with what the archangels and angels are doing. You'll be happy with everything with yourself, just happy. And that's a good thing. I just think that's an incredible thing, isn't it? Beauty. All right, Herman Boving put it this way. Who has made these objects endowed with unchangeable beauty unless it be the unchangeably beautiful one? God is the supreme of beauty because his being is characterized by absolute unity, harmony, and order. We think of beauty as a matter of the eye, but really as a matter of the mind. If an aged man thought he had lost his wife of 60 years in an earthquake, And if he somehow still retained hope that she was alive in the rubble, diligently, desperately searched for her through the destroyed homes of his neighborhood, suddenly found her alive in the crevice, in a foundation of their home, dusty, muddy, perhaps even a little bloody, certainly disheveled, would he not confess her to be the most beautiful sight his eyes had ever seen? I think so. So does not every true Christian find infinite beauty? in the mental image, sorry, of a dead Savior on a bloody cross. And by the way, that's one, another evidence of our, of, our, um, of our regeneration is that which was repulsive then becomes beautiful. You know, you th- just think about Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross. I mean, there's just such a beauty in that meditation. And the thing itself is really repulsive. And I do believe that God set it up that way. So that we're the only, only Christians can see the glory. We're the only ones that can say, isn't that that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful that he would do that for me and you? It's like, no, it's gross. It's gross. they use language like heavenly child abuse, which just makes me want to vomit. I don't think I have any idea what it meant that the father poured out his wrath on his own son. And they use this language. They don't get it. They don't get it. They don't understand. They don't believe. But we believers, we get it. We see the beauty. We see it so, so powerfully. It's just a beautiful thing. All right. And, and so also, isn't, aren't the, isn't the death of martyrs beautiful? I mean, we watched The, uh, the End of the Spear recently about the, the five that died down there in, in Ecuador. And, you know, in one sense, gruesome and the spears going through. And, and that movie really plays it up because there's this little boy involved. And, Dad, are you going to defend yourself? No, son, I can't. We're ready for heaven. They're not. And I can't kill them And so it's really very sad, especially if you have, you know, kids. And you're like, oh, man, it's tough. It's tough. But it's still beautiful, isn't it? You look at that, that they laid down their life that the gospel might advance. It's a a beautiful thing. And so in itself, very disgusting and gross and all that. But but understanding what God's doing with it and how how beautiful that is, that's marvelous. So God created all things. He made them beautiful in their own proper proportions, a ripe and perfect apple school of tropical tropical fish and crystal clear water. Flaming orange, red, and purple sunset over a jagged range of mountains. These things have beauty because they fit somehow into a place God designed for them in our minds. So that's it. So, of course, the greatest beauty is God himself and he will be beautiful. God himself is beautiful. Look at Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord and this is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. So that's David, and just, he just wants to see the beauty of the Lord. And, and you have to think that this must have been mediated to him by old covenant symbols, you know. The old covenant symbols of the sacrificial system, you know, the, the tabernacle. The temple wasn't built that at that point. And so here's this tent and, you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant and all that. And they were, had been made as in, in imitation of a heavenly pattern that God had shown Moses. And so in some way, God used these earthly symbols to lift David's mind up into the heavenly realms and said, I just want to see, gaze at the beauty of God and see him in his temple, the real temple, the one up in heaven. That's it. And this is beautiful, isn't it? I mean, that's a magnificent thing. We can do the same thing with scripture. You can just be sitting there with a book open in your lap and just be reading and tears coming down your face at the beauty and you're just in some dingy room somewhere. But it's just because of the beauty of the scripture. It's a marvelous thing, really. Uh, God shines forth most beautifully from His heavenly dwelling place. Psalm 50 and verse 2 from Zion. Perfect in beauty, God shines forth. So it's incredible. God has woven temporary beauty into the creation. He's made everything beautiful in its time, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says. You know, Why do you worry about clothes, said Jesus? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor a spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like One of these, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Uh, I, I tell you what, think about the words much more. Okay. How will God much more clothe us? I really have to think it's got to do with the garments of righteousness that he'll give us in Christ in which we will we will live forever and ever. That's how we will be much more clothed. In the meantime, if he's going to give you that, he might as well give you some clothes to put on here too. And he did that for Adam and Eve and he's been doing that. And that's fine. He'll provide you with clothes, definitely. But the real clothing, much more, the much more language, I think, is really God has a glorious raiment for you waiting for you in heaven so it's a beautiful thing now the question I ask is why does God create temporary beauty I mean this is the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire we see temporary beauty around us all the time flowers are a great example cut flowers it's only a matter of time dear friends some of them last longer than others They put you, you, you cut the bottoms of them before you put them in the vase I'm told we do that and you put the little packet you know that smelly food or whatever the, the flower food you know and how long do they last? Christy, how long do they last? What do you think? If it's going well, we push it a little bit 10 days at the most. And then we'll go 12 days, you know, and, and just you're holding on to something, you know. But but yeah, I mean, so why does God create temporary beauty? Flynn, why do you think? Why does He create things that are going to be beautiful just a real short time? A little joy on earth. Okay. Amen. Uh, and uh, we're going to be beautiful someday. I'm not saying you're not beautiful now, but I'm not saying either way. I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to say either way. All right. But, but someday, we, the believers, we, the bride, bride uh, of Christ, we will be beautiful. Revelation 21.2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So I love that Twilight Paris song, how beautiful. It's just a, a beautiful, beautiful song. And it's just like someday we're going to just be radiant. We're going to just be shining and, and beautiful and beautiful to look at. You know? C.S. Lewis talks about that in a in sermon, The Weight of Glory. And if you could just see uh, you know, a single saint in their resurrection glory, you would be as tempted to worship them as John was to worship the angel that brought him the book of Revelation. You know, I mean, that we would fall down and worship and then the saint would have to say, get up, I'm just a fellow servant. But, you know, we're going to shine radiantly like the sun. We're going to be very, very attractive, very beautiful to look at. It's not to say we shouldn't make some effort at a temporary beauty now. So do, do what you can. Keep up the good work, you know, whatever it takes. But um, just, you know it's temporary, don't you? You do know it's temporary. Alright, so do what you can but understand your true beauty, the best beauty is yet to come. And then glory, should we really do glory in four minutes? Let's not. So let's start next time with glory and uh, we'll do the doctrine of the Trinity, God willing, next time. Flynn, would you close us in prayer, please? Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His Kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes